Tenekoto, Namai, Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your hosts. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Hi everyone, thank you all for joining us today. England is a country that has a very ancient history, also a history of strange and unusual happenings, hauntings, weird and mythical cryptids, and of course, they are not short of their share of UFO sightings and incidents. One of the most famous and credible UFO encounters in the world happened in the United Kingdom in the 1980s. What makes these encounters stand out were two things. Firstly, amongst the flurries sightings in these accounts, not only were lights witnessed in the sky, but a UFO actually landed and was witnessed by some very credible witnesses on the ground and radar. Secondly, these credible witnesses were women and men who were on active military duty at the time these events took place. They happened in Rendlesham Forest, located in the United Kingdom, between two Air Force bases called RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters on the England's east coast. These bases became the focal point of some now very famous and well-known UFO incidents, with books having been written about the subject because of its very high profile. What happened basically was this. Just after midnight on December the 26th, radar screens picked up and followed an unidentified flying object, also seen by many military and most likely civilian witnesses as well. The radar followed it as it disappeared into the forest. Soldiers were sent to the spot and one Colonel Holt recorded a running commentary into a dictation machine as he and the personnel looked for the strange light that had landed. When they got there, they saw a luminous, triangular-shaped ship, about 10 feet across and 8 feet high, which was there briefly, then flew away. But this wasn't the only sighting of anomalous lights in the sky in that area. There were several nights of sightings witnessed by many people, both during this flurry of activity and, as you'll hear today, some time prior to this particular UFO flap. This event garnered media attention worldwide, not least because it was between the military bases and military personnel were directly involved in the case. Of course, for many years, the event was covered up. Then some few witnesses started coming forward, speaking to different authors who write books about the incident or researchers fascinated by the incident and, because the military were involved, especially suspicious of the cover-up who also write books. 
However, these high-profile figures who have been public about their experiences were not the only witnesses to the events that took place those nights. There are many servicewomen and men. In fact, I spoke to a gentleman by the name of Stacy in my second season of this podcast. It was a spur-of-the-moment interview with this gentleman whom I have never forgotten about his experiences as a member of the security police of those bases most notably the East Gate at Bentwaters. In this episode, I have the opportunity to have a conversation with another member of the military who served on the Bentwaters base, and she tells us all of her encounters with some interesting star people and what she and her colleagues witnessed during her time on the base. As always, the question is, are you willing to walk with me into this part of the Shadowlands? And see what awaits us there? Then let's begin. Major Laurie E. Rayfelt is a retired United States Army Major who in 1978 began her military career in the United States Air Force as an airman. Major Rayfelt's first orders out of technical school sent her to RAF Bentwaters, where she was assigned to the 81st Security Police Squadron, SPS, as the Law Enforcement Specialist. In February 1980, during a midnight shift at 0300 hours, then Airman Major Rayfelt and her partner, Airman Keith Duffield, witnessed a UFO that breached military airspace flying approximately 25 feet off the RAF Woodbridge runway. Major Rayfelt has participated in the Disclosure Project with Stephen Greer, collaborated with Georgina Bruni on her book You Can't Tell the People, and was recently mentioned in Jim Penniston's 2020 book The Rendlesham Enigma. In 2013, Major Rayfelt created the Rendlesham Lone Ranger UFO site Facebook, a very popular hub for those interested in UFO activity on military bases. She has also participated in several podcasts, including The Unexplained with Howard Hughes. My guest, Major Laurie Rayfelt. so very much for agreeing to talk with me and my listeners today. I've been really excited to talk with you about your experiences. Mm -hmm. When I first started in the second season of my podcast, I actually 
found a chap who'd never spoken about his experiences at at uh, at the Rendlesham Forest okay. before. And I found him on a group. I might have been Mufong group or something like that. I just saw yes. him and he was just, he was quite distressed talking about what had happened to him and how he had mm-hmm. no support and stuff like that. And so I contacted him on the group and I said, look, would you be interested in talking to me about your experiences? I, I don't mm-hmm. make fun of people. I'm very serious about this. I've been an experience in my entire life. I mm-hmm. have a lot of empathy for, you know, people whose lives are turned upside down by experiences mm-hmm. such as yours. And anyway, so it was a spur of the moment interview. I didn't have any questions or anything organized because he just rang me. He lives in the States. His name was M. Stacy Smith, and he was a sergeant in the security yes. police force. Did you yeah, know him? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I was just talking to him yesterday. Oh, yeah. he's such a lovely man. Such a lovely yes. man. And I felt so bad for him. I I felt so bad for him because he was obviously going through a bad time when I spoke to him and just, you yes. know, down and dealing with the physical issues that it left him. But anyway, oh, well, so yeah. I was wondering if, if you might know him. That's why I brought yes. him up. Because yeah, it, yeah. it's not like it was a huge base, really. No, no. Where where are you now? I'm in New Zealand. Okay, okay. That's not far from England or United States. <laughs> <laughs> not too far. Only about okay. what, 11 or 12, 12 hours straight flying. <laughs> oh, yeah, really, really. I'd love to go there, though. I, I hear it's really beautiful there. It is. We're we're a bit lucky. I'm really grateful that you agreed to come and talk with me after I reached out to you on Twitter. This is a subject that absolutely has fascinated me since I first heard of it. Now, maybe you could tell my listeners, what age were you when you joined the military and mm-hmm. what was your role? Okay. I actually enlisted, well, technically right out of high school. I was 18. And I was supposed to, I was planning on going to college and I was accepted to the School of Visual Arts in New York City. The biggest problem there was logistically, I could not, they didn't have dormitories and things like that. So mm-hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And my mom decided to take lemons and make lemonade by taking me to the Statue of Liberty. So I'm on the ferry and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do with my life and all this stuff? And I started brainstorming and remembered this woman in English class in 11th grade. And she had all these brochures about the Air Force. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that that's an option. Maybe I'll check it out. So I ended up uh, going uh, contacting the recruiter's office when I got home and that started the, that really started the journey. And uh, he told me, I'll have to take a test. And I said, okay, I'll take a test. And growing up on Long Island, we don't have any military bases there. So the closest that I've been around military people was my neighbor, Bill Pfeiffer, whose father happened to retire from the Air Force. So I had no, it was like, Private Benjamin, you know, I, I, <laughs> right. I, I had no, you know, sir, ma'am, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? And I, um, so anyway, 
I, I went through the whole process. I had to do the physical and everything. And then the, um, they offered me a job. They said, well, what do you think of inventory management? And I'm like, I don't want to work in a stock room. So they said, well, we'll come up with a job for you. And if you don't like it, you can say goodbye to the Air Force. And I'm like, fine, I don't care. You know, so I'm mad at the, at the recruiter. And he called me several days later and he said, well, guess what? And I said, could you please tell me? Because no, 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 you got to take a guess. And I'm like, I don't want to guess. You know, I want to smack him over the head. And, and he probably said, well, what do, you, what do you think about law enforcement specialist? And I thought, oh, that sounds really cool. You know, oh, yeah, that sounds great. So I didn't realize that law enforcement meant that I would be a gate guard. I'd have to stand on post and, you know, um, you know, flag, you know, wave people onto the base and whatnot. So, so, but I was excited. I was, I was so excited. And then I was in what they call delayed enlistment. So I didn't go in until January of 1978. And I then went through my text, my basic training, and then my technical school, which is all at the same base at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Then I went home for a couple of weeks in New York. And then I got on a plane at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey for um, England, I had gotten an assignment to RAF Bentwaters, and I was just so thrilled. I felt like I won a, a paid vacation. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to England. Oh, this, and the base is called Royal Air Force Base. And, you know, I was thinking, wow, this, this is like too good to be true. Right. So, um, so then I get to England and I, you know, I'm tired because I stayed up all night and, uh, so, yeah, so technically I was 18 years old when I got to England and not realizing that they really didn't like women in the career field. Oh. I learned that one real fast. And um, only about 5% of the military was women anyway. So mm. in a squadron of two, 300 men, it was like Lori, you know, it was like, I was it. Wow. That must <laughs> so, have been so hard. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there were actually about five or 10 women total that were act, active, enlisted. And, um, but I had a really thick accent, New York accent. So I was, you know, people were making kind of fun of that. They're like, yeah, can you say that again? You know, like, shut up. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, but I felt as soon as I got to Bentwaters, it was very different from, the base we landed in at RAF Mildenhall. RAF Mildenhall felt, it felt, it was a nice base. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why can't I stay here? Um, because when I got to RAF Bentwaters, it was like all these dark green Quonset huts and uh, every, I felt like I'd gone back in time, back to like the World War II. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, yeah, mm-hmm. I was thinking, this is, this is not good. <laughs> But then I started feeling like the atmosphere, like there was a heaviness in the air um, that I couldn't describe. It was like something was pushing down on me. And, you know, I was par- partially thinking that maybe I'm crank, you know, being a little cranky, didn't get much sleep, just got off the, you know, so I figured get some sleep and then feel better about it, you know. Right. And, um, but what happened, it was like, it didn't get better. I had a couple of days with my sponsor 
he took me around and showed me the ropes and everything. And that was nice. And we got, he had a little MG and we'd go driving around the little side roads and whatnot, but it was, uh, but all in all, as soon as I got back on the base, I felt that heaviness. So, so so there was something like, I felt like there was something off about the base. Um, and, uh, it's uh, it's funny because if you talk to other people, you know, they'll say, oh, we had a great time and all this stuff. I just had a different experience, you know. And right. um, so I went to my text. I went through more training before I went on to what we called flight. Flight meant it's a group of people working together, a small group of people. Right. So I, I was told I was going to be on Bravo flight, B flight. And that meant I was going to be working swings and mids. And it was still like, everything was just really, really off. Um, uh, the people that I dealt with in training had a real negative attitude. I mean, they were like, Rafael, you know, what are you doing? You know, um, I started hearing things like from other young airmen saying, yeah, you should be barefoot and pregnant and all this stuff. You know, oh, we don't, wow. it's, I mean, literally I was told I was not wanted, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm just a kid, you know? Uh, yeah. 18. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but the one thing that I, I didn't tell anybody because I didn't feel like it was something to share is that throughout my life before I even got to into the air force, I've always been a very sensitive person. Mm. I mean, I've always had this sensitivity that I can feel things that, um, that a lot of people can't feel it, you know, and I just kind of like my intuition is like through the roof. Right. And, you know, and I just couldn't, um, I couldn't tell people or I felt because I wasn't wanted to begin with, like when I started feeling certain things happening, I couldn't talk to somebody and tell them about it or say I'm scared or whatnot. Because, you know, it was like, uh, I was in a hyper-masculine career field, so you, you just can't say, I don't want to be out here. I'm really, really scared. Yeah. Um, the one thing I learned about when I got to England was the fact that it was uh, when I got to the, the bases, RAF Mount Waters and Woodbridge, is that it was in Suffolk County, which in England is considered the most haunted county in wherever and if you look at the lee lines and look at all different things i mean it, it's definitely a hot spot for for a lot of activity oh, and, and yeah yeah and it wasn't just it just wasn't just the um um in a year or so down the road is when i saw the ufo the one that uh, flew across the runway but before that, I, I was just still trying to, I was just struggling. I started to lose my stamina, started to put on weight. And I really think, I mean, it was like I was, I was becoming something else. And I, mm. you know, I, I was wearing, you know, it's cloudy in England, right? And, mm. and I had to wear sunglasses because I, I couldn't, the light was too much for my eyes, so a lot of photographs that I have from England, I'm wearing sunglasses and, you know, it's, it's like, I was just, you know, I just couldn't believe it that I was losing as an 18. Now I'm 19. A few weeks after I got to England, I turned 19. So, you know, I'm thinking, what's going on? How could I be losing my stamina and whatnot? Mm-hmm. You know, just, mm-hmm. it was just crazy. 
That's really interesting. Sorry, I was going to ask you, immediately when you started talking and said the first thing you felt was this heavy feeling, I thought, oh, here we go. We've got somebody here who's really in touch with what they feel and with their spiritual sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So it must have been extra hard for you as, you know, hence you put on the weight and you were uncomfortable and something just wasn't right for you there apart from all the misogynistic behavior around you yeah 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 and uh yeah and, and i really appreciate you know the fact that you as the interviewer happen to be a woman you know because it just seems like the whole career field the whole career field the whole uh ufo um most of them are just white men you know what i'm thinking thinking yeah we need a little diversity here come on <laughs> Come on, people now. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, um, yeah, after being there for a while, I mean, I started seeing a lot of people, their behaviors were just really, again, their behaviors were off. Um, it was a lot of uh, people who say, well, you know, you get these young airmen, they get to the base, they do a lot of drinking and partying and whatnot. But the partying they did there was like, through it was just oh it was just over the top top I, I really think a lot of these young men ended up leaving um the base and ended up being alcoholics or whatnot we had a lot of airmen who were um the uh squadron commander at the time if he did something that he didn't like and there were a lot of people doing really really stupid things like shooting their weapon off while on on post Mm. To, just to get out of there. I mean, people had that fight or flight feeling of, of being there. And sure enough, they were pro- processed out. And they, you know, and it was weird because you'd be working with these guys and then the next few days they were gone. I mean, they, mm. they literally would process them out and they were on a flight back to the, to the U.S. So I started reading, you know, the signs that I have to really watch my back because mm. squadron commander was uh, definitely, you know, if, if you did something or if you pursued, um, like if I started asking questions about things that I was experiencing, he would probably say, oh, you, you've got some psychological issues yeah. going on. So uh, we, we think you need to, to get out. We're, we're going to kick you out. And, um, and I'm, I'm talking about, we had probably, I don't know, 50 or 60, um, while I was there, about 50 or 60 air, airmen that were kicked out. Well, that that's were, a huge number. Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about a squadron of like 200 yeah. and, um, and, and uh, in fact, uh, some people, when we got over there, we were told that, um, there was, it was like an attrition that we were replacing people that got in trouble for doing drugs or right. on post or doing all this stuff. During that time, you know, I was just realizing that I had, there were a lot of, I was like on an obstacle course as for navigating my time. And, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to do, I'm a kid, so I'm trying to do a good job. You know, I, I, I want those warm fuzzies where people say, Way to go, Lori. Yeah. You know, you're doing great, that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it just wasn't really happening. And um, and so I um, 
you know, I just started to, to learn to work under kind of like, I felt like I was low crawling through uh, mm-hmm. like this really dangerous um, obstacle course. But then um, the first really strange thing that happened um, besides, so you get an idea that there's a lot of negativity yes. with the people there and there's the atmosphere is off. Now I was working patrol um, and I went over to the Ivy Lodge gate at RAF Bentwater side. And there was this, uh, we had this fuel area. It was called liquid oxygen locks. We called it. It was like, so we had to check. Uh, most of the things we did was um, we had uh, uh, a sheet that we would sign off, like right. building check sheet. So I, you know, so I went over there and um, to the left of me was this, this chain link fence that was covered in, in a, a lot of trees, a lot of leaves and whatnot. And I just had this feeling that there was a, uh, there was a pond on the other side. And the creepy thing about it is I, I saw the flash in my head. It was this uh, crazy man who had dark black hair and he looked like he looked like he just got out of the swamp. And I, I didn't see him with my eyes. It was just something I felt, but he, right. you know, every time I went there, it was like, I get a clear vision of what he looked like. And I would, and I would go there and I put the brights on my, my car. Cause I was working at night and then I, or I had to run out to the, to, to the gate and pull on the lock because sometimes they would put a note behind there to make sure we were checking our, right. our locks. And then I'd run back in into the truck and put it in reverse. And I mean, I would fly out of there and that would happen like several times. Um, yeah, it happened quite a bit. And I always thought, you know, when it was daylight, I was always thinking there's got to be a pond over there, but it was, it was off base, this pond. It was like on the other side of the fence. It was on the civilian side. And it turned out that, um, through Google Earth, yes, there is a pond there, which is like that really freaked me out. I'm like, oh my um, God, you know, when you start thinking about what you're feeling and, and then you start seeing it like reality. The other thing is that not far from there was this old mansion that in the 1920s, it was called Rendlesham Hall. And in the 1920s, they had turned it into a place for people that were inebriated, you know, people that had psychological problems. Um, So I'm thinking that that person could have died and he was haunting that spot, could have drowned. The other thing was there was also this crazy, crazy man that's known from near Orford Castle and same thing. So because Orford Castle was pretty close to where we were. So it was like, you know, I mean, I've been doing my own research to try and figure this out. And, um, but he scared the heck out of me. Oh, I can, I can well imagine. Now that hall that you mentioned, that's been on several ghost investigation shows has been haunted by a number of beings. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the first. And, um, 
you know, and again, I didn't want to tell people, you know, I didn't want to tell them I was really uncomfortable or, yeah. because then, you know, they would, you know, give me a hard time, make fun of me. And then there's the female aspect as well. Absolutely. And they'll just say you're a hysterical female. Yeah. And the interesting thing is just not long ago, recently, Alan Cohen, who was one of my um, colleagues that I worked with, he actually apologized for his behavior toward me. And I really, really thought I thanked him. And he goes, yeah, because I really need, he goes, I've been thinking about you all these years. And he goes, yeah, I really treated you poorly and I should take you out to lunch and I said you don't have to take me out to lunch I said just the fact that you said that and admitted it you know I said it it meant the world to me that apology oh wow that's really lovely that yeah yeah that would have been very appreciated for sure yeah oh yeah 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 then um then a lot of the activity that I experienced actually happened at RAF Woodbridge. It was our twin base. It was our sister base. Right. We, so we, all the bases there seemed to have a, two bases together. And, and, you know, so, and, and they are both really small bases. So uh, most of the activity happened over where it was known for being really haunted, um, where the activity happened near, Rendlesham Forest, the whole thing. It was uh, um, over at the back gate of RAF Woodbridge. It was called East Gate. Oh, that's where Stacy was based, where he had his experience. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it was just, um, you know, if you were there, you would look at it and say, you know, it's just, it looks like a telephone, a, a dark, ugly, green telephone booth. Yeah, and it's at the end of the runway. Where it gets scary is when the when the fog was rolling in, and you could hear the fog horn in the distance, and you felt like I was you were in an old black and white um, movie. It's like what could yeah. happen now? And the fact that there were windows on all sides, so technically, from your waist up, you were pretty much on a spotlight, right. and to to know. Yeah, to know that there was the Rendlesham Forest was directly behind you. The forest was really, really beautiful during the day, but in the evening, at night, it was, it was just, yeah, it was scary. It was scary, and and I, I, you know, I talked to people about this, and I really kept my, I really kept myself together because mm. I, you know, I would start hearing about other people, like I said being on Eastgate and taking their weapon out and shooting it off because they couldn't bear to be there or people crying, being on the gate and literally crying and saying, I can't be here. I'm really, really scared. And I was too, but I just felt like I couldn't tell anybody again. You know, I was just in the survival mode. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, I really felt like for most of my time I was there, I felt like I was in a war zone. And I had to deal with not just like the, the crazed guy at Ivy Lodge Gate, you know, but, um, you know, the other thing that the next thing that happened is um, it's about three o'clock in the morning and um, I'm struggling to keep awake at East Gate. But all of a sudden I felt like there was this um, deathly white face, this gray was behind me. Mm. And I was just so tired. And this gray was telling me in my mind, 
says like i know you're tired don't turn around you know just do yourself a favor don't turn around and i'm like i was like so tired i was like i don't care i'm not turning around i don't want to be scared you know and you know i just stayed awake and uh, but in my mind i i could see what he looked like and and it dawned on me that he was short because um again like i said the window it was from the waist up if I'm standing in the gate check, you could, you could see me from the waist up, but if I'm sitting down, he had to be about three or four feet tall, you know, he wasn't tall. Um, In fact, if you're on Twitter, the the picture that they have of me on there, I'm at Eastgate. That's a photo of me at Eastgate. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel when you realized that there was this alien being behind you, not a spirit, a, an alien being? How did I feel about? About, you know, sensing that there was this alien being behind you. How did it feel? Yeah, this this was the thing is that I just kind of kept myself together and just kind of, uh, you know, that happened once. It wasn't like every time, like the Ivy Lodge guy, every time I went there, he was. It was like right. he was tormenting me or just kind of wanting to scare me. Right. Um, the the gray was like only one time. How? And, how uh, I'm so sorry, Laurie. No, no, go ahead. How, how long was it from the time you encountered this gray to the time you saw the UFOs? What sort of time distance are we talking about? Yeah, I... I would say the gray was probably around early 1979. Okay, so it's a whole year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about early, yeah, about a year, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, then I had two other encounters. Um, one, the other one that I had was at, again, at East Gate. Uh, we had a, and this was probably, in the, I think it was in the summer of 79. Um, there was this Colonel Thompson who was an A-10 pilot. And he was at Chicksands at an air show, Chicks, RAF Chicksands. And his plane uh, kind of cart, cartwheeled. He flew low. Anyway, he died. And one day it was, it was about... Oh, gosh. It was probably about six or seven o'clock, five or six o'clock in the evening. Most of the traffic had left Eastgate and or left out of Eastgate. Um, so I'm there and I turn around and I see this colonel, Fulbert colonel, which is like one notch below a general. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what is he doing there? And then I started started thinking he was just like leaning on some, um, it was like this cement pad. It looked like a parking area right right beside the gate shack. And sometimes people would store boxes or, you know, things on it, just, I guess, to get it out of the way. And he was over by these, this stuff. And it was no way that he could get around me without me seeing him. Mm. And so it was, my concern at that time, just to show you how, how minute it was, remember I'm dealing with these men at, in this career field. The colonel did not have his hat on, okay? When, when you're not near the runway, you have got to wear your hat. 
It's just, it's just a rule. When you're outside, you wear the hat. When you're when you walk inside, you take the hat off, unless you're working in law enforcement. Then you keep your hat on. But anyway, which is one of these rules. Yeah. So I kept thinking, I kept worrying because I said, I gotta go up to this colonel and tell him to put his hat on. And he's in his he was in his flight suit. He was, you know, he was wearing his pilot suit. And he was just kind of leaning back, smoking a cigarette. And, I, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm like really stressed out. And I, the problem is, is that I was afraid the patrol, one of the sergeants would come up to me and give me a hard time because I did not tell the colonel to put his hat on. Right. So I'm really, oh, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And he, uh, then I turned back again, finally, finally getting the gumption to go up there and tell him. And he was gone. And I'm thinking, where'd he go? And I'm, I can't really leave my gate check area, but I kind of walked out into the middle of the street because there was this fence that was behind him. So he couldn't go behind me and jump over this tall fence. Um, and then he'd have to actually walk up the perimeter road because the road that Eastgate was on was this long road that um, was parallel with the with the runway. Right. So once you, if you stood in the middle of the road, you could see about a mile down the road. And, you know, so I, I mean, I went looking, well, where the heck did he go? Um, and it, it took me, it's, oh gosh, several years to realize that um, the only colonel that I knew that died after that time was Colonel Thompson. And, and uh, he was like one of two or three colonels, uh, full bird colonels on the base. Um, so, and we say full bird because that means um, they wear eagles on their, on right. their shoulders. Yeah. So that's why we call them full bird. Um, so, I, you know, fortunately, I didn't have to tell him to put his hat on because he's, now he was gone, you know, that whole thing. And, uh, but, it, but, you know, my point is, is that, you know, the fact that I saw him mm. and, and the way I was thinking, it wasn't like I was thinking that I'm seeing, you know, uh, I'm seeing a ghost or I'm seeing whatever, right. you know. I mean, you know, he he looked as real as anyone. Right. And and so, you know, I I you know kept that in my mind. And then um, but again, I, you know, I of course I didn't share it with anybody. Um now this one, this this one last thing that happened that was before the UFO, the UFO happened, it was like one of the last things that happened. And I'll, and I'll, I will get to that. No, it's all right. This is a good journey. Okay. I was, um, again, I was at RAF Woodbridge, but this time, uh, and it's right, it's not that far from Eastgate. And it was um, in what we call the non-nuclear munition storage area. So I had to guard this building. And it was in the wintertime. It was probably trying to think yeah it was it was either in the winter of 79 or um like january february or um because i don't think it was that close to the time 
when I was, yeah, I think it was 79 actually, um, that I was in the gate, I was in the, um, in this, yeah, non-munition storage area. My job was to check again. I had my belt building check sheet. Right. And I had to check these buildings. And I was heading to the to start my building check sheet. And I was working the midnight shift and it was cold. It was the rain, icy rain was pouring down. And I just wanted to get out there and do my first uh, my first go around, check it, and then go back to my gate check. And so I um, was walking about maybe 20, 30 feet away from the gate shack. When all of a sudden, again, it was like in, in my mind, I saw this like eight foot, seven, eight foot um, praying dark, really, really dark green praying mantis. Um, and he was, he, was pace, he was pacing back and forth he told me to dunk up. It was like he, he, he was saying, um, he was saying, go back to your gate check. It was almost like he was so busy, so focused on something. He didn't want me to interrupt what he was doing or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, you know, th- that one really, 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 really. Because personally, I did not want to go back there if I knew there was an eight foot praying yeah. man walking on two legs. I mean, very, very muscular. I mean, yeah. you know, when I, you know, I just, you know, I was thinking, oh, this is, this is insane. I mean. Um, you must have thought that you were losing it. Um, I, I was just terrified. I was mm. just terrified. I wasn't even thinking about, you know, I was kind of thinking that whatever is out there, I'm really glad that he could flash whatever it was to, to get me back to the gate shop because, I got back to the gate shack and I said, fine, I'm settling in here. I'll wait till it becomes daylight, you know, wait a little while. And I had my cassette player and my music. I was listening to uh, the soundtrack from Annie. And it was like, the sun will come up tomorrow. But she bought a dollar that tomorrow. Like, I don't want to be here. (laughs) You know? And uh, so anyway, so by the time, yeah, February 1980, uh, this is the, the, the main one that I was, that I shared right off the bat because I wasn't alone. I was with another airman, uh, Keith Duffield. Uh, he and I were on patrol at Woodbridge and we were checking the back gate and we were just wanting to, um, do our job stay awake that was the main thing right and and then i i went to the gate i checked the lock and then we i backed the the uh the truck back over to east gate because at this point now we actually would lock the back gate so no one had to be out there in the middle of the night at east gate and uh so i um i was parked um at east gate facing in the direction of the North Sea. And um, we could see this, this air, aircraft coming in. It was a, a, this looked like a, a the light. Um, I would have thought it was a cargo plane. Like it was a big, you know, it was a good sized plane. And I kept looking over to my left where the runway was. 
and thinking the lights were going to go on the runway. And because it was coming over the North Sea, that I would have to do a customs check because it was coming in from another country. Um, didn't realize that it could have been coming in from a different planet. So it actually stopped at, it was coming in like a regular approach. It was high and it would start to go like lower and low, you know, it's going down. Mm -hmm. And then it stopped in in midair and just hovered. And we were like, just completely changed our, you know, we were, I know we were both processing, like, what the heck, you know, what, what, (laughs) you know, it was just too, you know, what's going on? And it went, um, and then it made these geometric movements, like went up, down, left, right. And then it, it kind of throbbed before it burst into three pieces. And it, it took a, it took like a dive down and then it flew up into the, into the night sky. It didn't make any sounds, didn't make any noise, no, no mechanical noise. And we were both like, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> I was kind of like, do you think it'll come back? Maybe we can figure out what this thing is, you know? And um, so we realized because it flew over the base uh, that we we had, it breached military airspace. Right. That, that we had to report it. If I didn't report it, um, that would have, that would have been really bad. Right. Um, so I didn't, I felt like I was between a rock and a hard spot because I did not want to report it. it you know, it's like the, the praying mantis, you know, I'm, like, I'm not reporting that. I'm not saying, Hey, I got this flash in my head and he, he was pacing. I guess he's all upset, you know? So this, but this one here, we, we had to, so I hand the radio over to Keith and say, I guess you got to report it. And then he hands the radio back over to me and said, no, no, you're the lead patrol. You, you report it. <laughs> so I get on the radio uh, and this like the handheld radio. And, um, and it was that guy, Alan Cohen, the one who, who did apologize to me recently. But back then he was, I was like, oh God, I got to tell him of all people. And so, but I did. And he told me immediately, he kind of cut me off and told me, uh, get on the landline at Eastgate. So I said, yeah, that makes more sense. That way I'm not broadcasting, you know, that I'm seeing a UFO. Even though I said enough that anyone that was listening on the radio frequency heard me talk about a UFO. So for the next several weeks, it was like, yeah, Ray felt seeing UFOs, you know, it was not it just wasn't pleasant and so I I I told him what happened and how it made the movements and how it burst into three pieces and flew over the base he told me to go to the air tower which I thought was smart so I went out to the air tower and uh, woke the guy up I remember climbing the metal steps and then coming to the door and the door was really, it was like this metal door that if you knocked on it, you couldn't even hear the knock. So I had to kick it to, wow. to get him to open the door Bam! just kick with my foot. And, and then I could tell immediately that I woke him up. So uh, I was really upset. 
And then, but I thought, well, maybe, you know, because I, I don't work in the air tower, so I don't know what kind of technology they had at that time. And, you know, I know they had radar, but, you know, did they have it that they could record it or it was right. recorded, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know. So I asked him if, you know, did he see it? And did they have a recording? And he said, no. And then he said that he thinks it could have been afterburners on a, on a uh, British aircraft. And I'm thinking, no, no, no. When you see afterburners or you hear, you know, there's always a sonic boom. There's always a noise. And, you know, I, I was just really, 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 really so annoyed and frustrated and just felt like I, you know, I just, I didn't want it to be me that had to that had to deal with it. Um, yeah, I, if it was a guy, it would have been easier, you know. Right. You know, but you know, it would, so so those were like all the little elements that I had to deal with, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. to um, to get heard. And the funny thing about when you start looking at my UFO sighting that happened in February, nineteen eighty. And it was reported to the law enforcement desk, yet no one knows about it. I mean, no one, you know, it's uh, what, when I finally learned about Rendlesham Forest incident, I, you know, you know, I was like, oh my God, I guess I don't remember that it happened before, you know, set about 10 months before yeah, yeah. December. And I didn't learn about the December UFO sighting because I, I actually left the base permanently on uh, December 15th. So right. I missed it by the two weeks, which which was fine by me. I mean, you know, I was like, you know, power to them. You guys deal with it. You guys see what it's you like. You had enough by that stage, enough experience. Yeah. With, uh, Laurie, can I just go back? When you saw these lights, what color were they? W- were they just white? Or- white, yeah. White. Yeah, they were just white. Very, very bright. I mean, I couldn't see, couldn't see through them um, to see what the object looked like. It was just really, really bright. Right. Um, and how long? But we did. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, I was going to say we did lose about two hours because when we were at the gate, when we were at the air tower, um, see, it happened at three in the morning when we saw the UFO, and then it was daybreak when we went to the air tower. So we did lose uh, some time, but it was so seamless. We didn't mm. realize that mm. we lost time. It was kind of like that time flies when you're having not so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, that was again, something that I share with people because I think it needs to be um, explored, you know, Oh, absolutely. I was going to ask you if there was any mis- missing time. In fact, I was going to ask you, oh, back when you saw the grey, did you have any missing time then that you were aware of? No, no, I, I, not, not that I'm aware of. And the time span from the time you saw the praying mantis type being to the time you saw the UFOs, what sort of time distance was that? You know, that I, I really... Um, I really can't say. I don't know. I don't know. It's been so long. Right. Um, yeah. It has been but, a few years. Yeah. I, let me think. I, I was on 
I do remember I was on Bravo flight um, and then I was on D flight. So I, um, yeah, I think that the praying mantis thing happened. Um, it was in 1979 that winter, like January, February, right. whatever. And then the, um, and, and the gray was, before that so they they were pretty pretty close together right um and the same with the um the crazed guy the one at ivy lodge gate that's really interesting and often uh i've heard quite often that there's a correlation between paranormal events and ufo encounters as well mm. there seems yeah. to be a correlation of some sort yeah, yeah. Well, I like I said, um, like when I was a kid, you know, we had this, uh, um, it was something in the basement, you know, and it was just something that, you know, you know, I, I would get scared really, really easily. Right. And I didn't want to go to places, but it, but it happened with my mom and dad in 1974 when they were going through a, they had a really, really nasty fight. Um, this was before they got a divorce and all of a sudden I could hear that it was a man's voice coming from the basement and he was laughing like and he kept getting louder and louder and my mom was so mad at my dad that she decided to sleep in, in the bed with me um, and I woke, tried to wake her up do you hear that do you hear that and she would wake up and, and it would be gone you know I'm like God, and that's just try and fall, just try and go to sleep, just fall asleep, you know. Um, yeah. And then when my mom and dad divorced, I decided to stay back and live with my dad. And um, I was sitting in what we called the stone room, and all of a sudden I heard that laughter again, and it was really, really loud. And I I left the house. I left the house. I, I had to go babysitting anyway at a house that was but I, I got there about two hours early. So, I mean, I, I've had these things happen yeah. throughout my life. And, and it's just, uh, you know, I just kind of, um, I don't know. What to... Just felt like a continuation. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah, I accept it. I, I find, I find that throughout my life too. I, I've um, actually, um, uh, like I, I got, I don't know. I, I said to my mom, she was talking about, you know, uh, things were going to change or whatever. And I jumped up and I said, you're getting a divorce. And this was like about six months before they got a divorce. And, you know, and I was getting a lot of premonitions <laughs> and that kind of thing. Um, that's, and then when I was like in third grade, I actually saw um, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in in my I went to Catholic school and it was in the all pur purpose room. And it was very different from all the other statues in, in right. the church. So I I was just trying to figure out what you know I, I was walking past some double doors and I look in and, and I saw saw this beautiful amazingly beautiful lifelike statue and then we pass another set of double doors and it's gone. And, had told my mom and my mom contacted my grandma who was living in Ireland at the time. And she said, uh, yeah, Lori had a, a, a sighting, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's a statue, you know, and then, mm. you know, 
But then I, as an adult, I went back to the school and wanted to share the information with the, um, the, the people at the church. And they told me that they've had several people that have said throughout the years, they would feel the, the essence of, of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus there. So I thought, wow, I mean, you know, that kind of corroborated some of the things that right. I felt. And um, recently, like with my brother, um, about six months before, about six to seven months, he never told us that he was uh, abusing drugs, heroin, and that kind of thing. But I told him, I said, I said, Harold, I don't, you need to get out of there. You need, I, I told him that where he was living, he was living in Wilmington, North Carolina. I said, it's going to kill you. It's mm-hmm. going to kill you. And I said, I said you got to get out of there. You need to go. You need to be closer to your daughter. And uh, it wasn't not even a year later that yeah he, he died. So, I mean, you know, just kind of, you know, when I start seeing things like that, I mean, I do know that I'm somehow connected into something um, bigger than yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And with your missing time, Laurie, do you have any recollection of what happened since then? Have you had any recollection of what happened in that missing time? Like I know what? that for Stacy, when he had his missing time, he got all these mathematical equations downloaded yeah. into his brain. Yeah. Well, I had my my thing would be um, having recurring dreams, mm. and I would have this dream that I'm over in England and I'm talking to all these guys that I used to work with, and I kept telling them that I don't belong here. I don't, you know. It's like I'm not an airman anymore. In fact, I'm a I'm a army major. You know, I don't belong. You know, and but I'm at the gate, and then something grabs me. Uh, um, but what happens is I call it a traveling dream because, I, you know, then I'm on patrol and I'm driving around and it's all dark and cold and rainy, and then next thing I know I'm in the desert, and then um, I'm on this dirt road in the desert and I come upon this aqua color water and it's it's like so beautiful it, it doesn't belong there and it's like salt water and the sand on the bottom is all white and and it's butted up around these like brown dirt kind of mountains it's in the desert and so one day I get a complimentary copy of a National Geographic magazine in the mail and I'm thumbing through it and, and there's the pond and I'm like, Oh my God, there it is. And it was, it's this place called uh, Polo, Polo Azul. It turns out it's a place in Mexico. Interestingly, it's not far from, it's about maybe 50 miles or something like that. Very, very close to this place called, the zone, the zone of silence, which is known for high UFO activity. And also um, there are these uh, known for having these, these uh, aliens from Pleiades. Right. And um, yeah, they help people. I guess people get lost in the desert and all of a sudden they come upon these three tall 
blonde haired people and they, they help them and then they disappear or something like, where'd you go? Mm -hmm. Um, And the connection with that in England is that over near Bentwaters and Woodbridge, they were doing a lot of um, radar jamming. They were doing a lot of things with frequencies and there's, they did a project called Cobra Mist. And so they were doing, they were definitely doing some projects, um, you know, top secret kind of stuff going right. on. Um, right. And then, then I find out that Pleiades has a big piece of this too, because not far from Rendlesham Forest is this place called Sutton Hoo. And on Sutton Hoo, they actually have these mounds that are on the ground that are shaped like a star cluster of Pleiades. So, so there, there are just all these little connections right. and the, the up, down, left, right, the, uh, the movements of the, the geometric movements of the, um, of the UFO, you know, um, there's a connection there. And, and, you know, the funny thing is it was like the sign of the cross. And the other thing that came through my mind and I, I put it on one of my drawings and then I saw it on, uh, Larry Warren, he drew a, a picture and he had it on his and it was with the triangle and two circles. One circle is kind of over a little bit overlapping the edge of the triangle. And right. then there's another circle. And I think that's also some of the hieroglyphs that I think Jim Penniston saw that I, you know, and I drew uh, the photo, I think, in 1996. And at the time, I didn't um, talk. I did talk to Jim a few times, but he never got into the whole, um, like, seeing photos of the uh, of the hieroglyphics that he saw. Uh, right. It would be maybe a year or so later that I, I learned about it. But uh, the hieroglyphics and, you know, I mean, how he came up with the you know, the binary code, that whole thing. And there's a, if, if you do a, there's also some kind of triangulation between where uh, Rendlesham Forest is to say uh, the zone of silence and it intersects with also the uh, Egyptian uh, pyramids and the uh, Bermuda Triangle. So that really also brings in the, um, what is it called? Atlantis. Right. Atlantis is part of it. So um, yeah, I just got done reading reading a book about, about that. So it's, you know, all these pieces are interconnected. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of, you know, what we do with it and Join what people, right. what people, you know, as, as an experiencer, um, it's like, I've got this information, maybe somebody out there could actually look at it and, you know, help to decipher it. Right. Same, same, um, because I think that what, um, Stacy saw and Jim Paniston and Larry Warren saw and John Burroughs, they, everyone had very, very different experiences, even at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, apparently, um, uh, John Burroughs, uh, you know, he disappeared, disappeared for about five minutes before he came back. Wow. And, uh, and Linda Moulton Howe had told me um, not long ago that at the Renson Forest incident, when Colonel Williams, the wing commander, was out there in the uh, field, that someone said that the praying mantis was out there too. So somebody else had also um, mentioned that. And, uh, but I think for a lot of us, it's just something that's become a part of who we are. And for me, it's, it's just having the opportunity and really I I have need to share the story because Mm. Mainly because someone out there um, can really, really help me understand, you know, what we have. I I do believe that we're all given gifts, and I really do believe that what I have is is a gift, and I uh, like to really hone in on that gift, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but right now, uh, you know, I, I do the best I can. And I have like zero interest in disclosure or anything like that because I I don't think even the people in the Pentagon and all that really know uh, you know they don't really know what's going on and and to see what we experienced as a um, uh, you know Star Wars or to see as something as you know the weaponization of whatever this entity is, I, I really think we're going down the wrong road if we start looking at, at what's happening here around us as uh, something that we should all jump in on the bandwagon and be a part of in a war. I think that what's going on with the powers to be that's out there, however we want to define it, I, I do believe that um, the one commonality that we all have is I don't think there's any real interest in us humans. It's the problem is, is that with what us humans are doing to this beautiful gem of a planet we call right. Earth. Right. And I really think that that's where, um, where they're upset. Yeah, and, uh, I, I know for, for me personally, that's one of the things that my star people encounters have drummed into me is the need to look after our earth and what are we doing to it? We have mm-hmm. to take care of it. It's our only planet, you know. We yeah, no, yeah. no earth too we can go to. We have to look after what we have. Absolutely. And I think I think the lesson that they want us to know is that not until we treat each other better will we ever get to, you know, I, I don't think they want to um, say, oh, well, we need proof. We got we to gotta see one of these people or whatever, uh, aliens. And I, I, if I was one of them, I wouldn't want to come up and meet, you know, someone from Earth here because they probably want to, you know, they want to dissect, you know, they want to, you know... <laughs> You know, it's it's like we we're just really good at you know we like to 
kill people and break things all the time, you know? I mean, the fact that we have to, I mean, it, it's just all over, it's just all over the place. Black lives matter. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's about time we, you know, what about loving each other and really be thankful that everyone has something to eat and mm. people, you know, um, that that there's more love in the world and, and that kind of thing. And I kind of think because my sensitivity that way is I think that's what um, makes me kind of like an antenna or a magnet to a lot of the what's out there in, in the universe. Because I, you know, um, yeah, I genuinely care. Um, but we gotta, we gotta change our evil ways, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying, and the point that you made about being loving. One of the things, and I, I bring this up so many times um, when I'm talking about UFOs with people, is. One of the major things that my one of my most beloved star people said to me was this, Marianne, when you do anything, you must do it from your heart. Mm-hmm. When you think, think from your heart. When you act, act from your heart. When you talk, talk from your heart. I've probably got back to front, but that was the basic message. You must do everything from your heart. Come from a space of love and compassion and understanding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's key. Yeah, you, you you've got you've got the key, and you know, as long as you, you know, yeah, do it from the heart, do it yep. from the soul. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just to get back to your military service, Laurie, how long after these incidents did you leave Brent, Bent Waters in that area? Yeah, I uh, I left there in uh, yeah December of 1980. So I'd been there about two and a half years. I actually extended to be there a while longer because I was living off base. As soon as I got off base, I I, I you know I, it was like I felt like I I could breathe. Right. Um, but any, but anytime I went on there, I but I was counting my days down literally literally, and like many other airmen. But we were you know I mean it was just a really, really um, unusually uh, uh, difficult assignment. Mm-hmm. And and after I, I left there, I went to uh, a base at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver and ran into one of the flight chiefs that I knew over at Bentwaters. And I asked him, I said, what was going Did you feel what was going on over there? I mean, you know, I was just asking him genuinely, but he had this really weird smile on his face as if to say, oh, it was great. You know, I had a great time. Then I realized it was pretty much, again, it was the same kind of mentality. Lori, don't pursue it. You know, don't, yeah. don't go there. And, and I didn't, but I, um, but a lot of people that I met at my next base could tell that I looked like I'd been in, I looked like I'd been in war. I mean, wow. you know, yeah, I was not a, not a happy camper. Um, but I, you know, but I was just also very relieved to be away from Bentwater. So I just didn't, but I felt like also there was so much that was unresolved, you know, mm-hmm. I left there and yeah, I left. It's kind of like I escaped, I survived, but you know, did it really have to be that way? Yeah. You know, you know yeah. it, it, it's, I could have probably learned a whole lot more 
about right. my experiences, if I had uh, others around me that would, you know, um, you know, not ridicule and do all that uh, to make it really, really difficult or try and throw me out. So I, I left, um, so I got to Lowry in Denver and it was, it was a good assignment. You know, it was like something was freaking wrong with Bent Waters. And then, then I get to my next assignment. Now I'm stationed in Las Vegas and at Nellis Air Force Base. And again, it, that the, it wasn't, the feeling wasn't there of what, what I dealt with over in England, um, except for one time I was, uh, now I, I, would, I left law enforcement and I was working in uh, television production, actually videotaping uh, bomb drops on a, on a dried out lake bed. Right. And, and one, it was a brief moment that I'm sitting in this, what they call a, a conics box, which has all the electrical equipment in it. And, you know, it doesn't have any windows. And all of a sudden I had the feeling like the world went dark and it really, and it was just during 12, about noontime. And so it was bright out. It was in the desert. And I jumped out as if to say, I, I mean, I felt that fight or flight feeling. Yeah, yeah, but that but that was it. And then I left there, and I went to Fort Belvoir in Virginia uh, before I got off of active duty. Um, yeah, that was my last active duty assignment before I went into the reserves. Uh, but I never, 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 never. But I, I mean, I spent twenty seven years mm-hmm. in the military, uh, having retired as an army army major. I uh, I never experienced anything like what I ex- experienced in England at, at our Bentwaters and Woodbridge, and um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. And oh, it's uh, yeah. yeah, and and I think that uh, uh, I just think that more people have to listen to this kind of a story as opposed to. You know, like I said, all that disclosure stuff, you know, yeah. oh, we're finding out this document and blah, blah, blah. It's like, uh, I'm like, there's a whole lot more to what's going on that, that you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And in any case, uh, well, my star people told me back in the 80s, around the time you were having your experience, that uh, that the the world's governments have been told that they had to release information about about star people or the choice would be taken out of their hands mm-hmm. and i honestly feel like any disclosure is going to come from experiences like you like mm-hmm. myself uh, people on the ground yeah Pe- people have yeah. an in- innate distrust of governments because mm-hmm. for, for the most part, governments really aren't there for the people. They're there to serve mm-hmm. uh, the interests of, well, certainly in, in, in your country, of the military industrial complex rather mm-hmm. than ground people. So I mm-hmm. really believe so the more I speak to people like yourself, the more I believe that what we're doing speaking out is so important because mm-hmm. I believe that 
disclosure is going to come from us. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Well, well said. Thank you. And Laurie, I really appreciate your time today and your little dog's been so patient. Uh, <laughs> bless them. It's been really awesome talking to you. I've yeah. so enjoyed hearing your experiences and I really appreciate your bravery in speaking out. That's so Oh, awesome. thank you. Well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Totally. And you're a wonderful woman and I so appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Laurie. conversation, Laurie talked about her paranormal experiences whilst on the base, as well as her encounters with a grey bean and a very large muscular prey mantis type bean who told her not to turn around as he didn't want to scare her. She discussed the lights that both she and her workmate experienced. It was about a year after she left the base that the famous landing experiences occurred, but from our conversation you can see that this site had been active for some time. Unfortunately, our conversation was cut short because of computer issues on my side, so I never got to let you all know where you can follow Laurie, nor could I follow up on some questions I had. So apologies for that. Laurie has a Twitter account which is linked from this episode's page on our podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com and she has a private Facebook group called Rendlesham Lone Ranger UFO Sightings. I want to thank Laurie for allowing herself to be so vulnerable and open about what she experienced. There's no doubt in my mind that this continues to impact her in her day-to-day life, even all these many years later. How could such an experience not? Laurie and Stacey both continue to feel the effects of their experiences as youngsters in the military on the Bentwaters base. If you haven't already, go and check out my conversation with Stacey about his time at Bentwaters as well. Today's bumper music was called The Alien. If you enjoyed this podcast and have considered becoming a sponsor, now's a great time to join. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. As a patron, you get early access to the podcast episodes and a special members-only page on the podcast website that has bits that end up on the digital cutting board and little extras like full, raw, unedited video conversations with guests, EVPs caught during the conversations and so much more. Also, you can download full written transcripts of each episode and you get my absolute appreciation and gratitude. Patreon.com forward slash MCC15 for just the cost of a cup of coffee a month. And so you don't miss out on an episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms, including iHeartRadio and Pandora as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words. Open Walking in the Shadowlands and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. Check out our Facebook page, Walk in the Shadowlands, our Twitter feed at Shadowlands10, TikTok under walking underscored the underscored Shadowlands. Like and follow for teasers of our upcoming episodes. 
If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those who are impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thanks for listening to this episode. Kakite ano oya koi. I'll see you again. Thanks for listening. 